Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's special episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with former GE CEO, Jeff Immelt, who is now a venture partner at storied VC firm, NEA. Jeff worked at GE for 35 years, including 16 as CEO, after taking over for none other than Jack Welch in 2001. There's a couple things I want to say before we get started. I'm sure many of you have heard about Jeff and likely not for great things. He was one of the worst performing CEOs over the last two decades, erasing billions in market value. Jeff has been a major target for pundits, research analysts, former employees, investors, academics, and so many more. This past year, he released a book detailing his experiences called Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company, which I've linked in the episode description. The book was actually fantastic. He's extremely critical and honest about his own performance, taking blame for the majority of the decisions, but also pushing back on a few bad assertions and misunderstandings about the company, some decisions that were made, and his tenure. I really liked how transparent he was in laying out his thought processes, why he thought certain decisions were right at the time, and what the reader can learn from it. When prepping for this interview, I did a ton of research on him, including speaking with former GE employees, reading his book, listening to many prior interviews, and more. And you know what I found? Almost every single interview and interaction from the last five years is identical. It's a scathing, gotcha-style takedown where he is put in the hot seat on decisions he made. It makes for good entertainment, but I found the answers that he gave in those interviews were just what any trained CEO would be doing. They were defensive, safe, well-rehearsed answers with maybe a pinch of vulnerability. If you want that style of interview, go to YouTube, type in his name, and you'll find plenty. After reading this book, despite his flaws, I also saw someone who led one of the most systemically important companies in the world for 16 years and was a leader in it for decades. He was negotiating with everyone from Putin to Jamie Dimon to Barack Obama and led this company through numerous waves of transformation and crisis. I felt those insights from his time would be more powerful for you than just listening to him defend why he had two corporate jets again. I highly recommend the book Hot Seat as your summer read where he details these intense conversations his darkest moments as a CEO, and some really funny stories like working with Steve Ballmer in his first job, introducing Jamie Dimon to his wife at HBS, why he has the GE logo tattooed on his body, and more. I'll actually throw you a sneak preview of the GE tattoo story at the end of the episode. So what do we discuss in today's episode? We cover his rise to the top of GE, the one thing Jack Welch did better than anyone he ever met, why now was the right time to write this book, his second day as CEO, which was September 11th, 2001, globalization and why the US and high caliber business folks like you, the listener, need to rethink China, how banks need to think about the rise of fintech, GE Capital 101, his work at NEA and what he loves about Masterclass's CEO, and of course, a fun rapid fire round, including his exec dream team, favorite book, Dream Wharton FinTech guest, and favorite 30 Rock skit. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. Enjoy the show. Jeff, welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. It is an absolute pleasure and honor to host you on the platform. One of the most famous CEOs of the 21st century, leading one of America's most iconic companies for 16 years and working there for a total of 35. There were many ups and downs, which we'll get to. I'm very excited to share your story with our global audience. Yeah, great, Ryan. Great to be with you. And congrats on the podcast and all, all that goes with it. Thank you. So before we jump into Hot Seat, the book that you released, I want to provide some context for our listeners. You know, GE is a very personal story for you. You're the son of a GE purchasing agent who had worked there for almost 40 years. And you grew up in a real kind of Americana middle-class family, citing Getting central air at 16 is one of the best days of your life. And, you know, after HBS, you worked your way up the old-fashioned way in the company until you becoming CEO. But before all of this, can you tell our listeners a bit about a young 
Jeff and Melt, you know, how you developed this blue collar work ethic and how it brought you to GE. Yeah, you know, Ryan, I describe myself as a blend of a math major and a football player. So I kind of grew up <laughs> with a very academic background. I always liked solving problems. You know, I, I majored in math in college. So I was a deep, you know, kind of like problem solver. And I always played team sports. In fact, that's what led me to look at Vanderbilt. That's what led me to look at, to go to Dartmouth. And so, you know, kind of like problem solving and, you know, kind of context for teamwork were the two things that kind of brought me to where I am. You know, in college in those days, you didn't have internships. So I worked at a Ford factory for four summers. So, you know, I got a chance to see up close, you know, kind of frontline workforce and things like that. I went to college, ran out of money, uh, worked for a couple of years, went back to HBS, <laughs> met good people there. But when I graduated, I, I worked at the summer at BCG and I had a great experience consulting, but I found myself identifying more with the client than with my peers and decided mm -hmm. to go seek a path in general management. And uh, I went to work for GA in 1982. I thought I'd stay five years and it ended up being 35 years. And uh <laughs> you know, kind of did a classic, uh, multiple businesses, multiple functions, multiple regions. And, uh, you know, you open your eyes one day, 20 years later, and you're being considered for CEO. It's hard to explain exactly where all the time went, but that was my journey. Absolutely. So was there maybe a, you know, kind of a first big early win of your career where you started to realize, you know, I'm pretty decent at this thing. And I think I have a shot at going somewhere within GE. Yeah, you know, Ryan, so in, when I was 32 years old in the late 80s, I went to the appliance business and I worked on what it, in those days was kind of like the biggest product recall in the history of GE. We had 3.3 million uh, compressors that needed to be replaced in refrigerators. And I was in charge of the appliance uh, service business. And it landed me in the G boardroom once a month for 18 months. We had a deal, not just with Jack Welch, who my very famous <laughs> predecessor, but with all of his staff. And I, what I learned about myself at that moment in time, which is a really important thing for people like you and young people starting a journey, is that I could take a punch, that I could hold my own with maybe the toughest boss in the world. Right. You know, I could, I could hold my own. And, uh, and that gives you a sense of confidence, not that you can go on and be a CEO but that you can go on and do bigger and better things. And I think that's, uh, that's really important early in your career. So you mentioned Jack Welch. I think, you know, we must, of course, cover him being on a fintech, you know, and business podcast of any sort. So, you know, any business person and any NBA has read the books, the case studies, all about him. You laud a few key traits of his in the book, his ability to relate with so many people, his toughness, his drive but also some flaws. He's, you know, clearly after reading it, he's not a perfect guy, nor is anyone. But, you know, what were the traits that he had that made him so admired within the company and the general business world? I, I've never seen anybody before or after who could scale better than Jack, who could run something at scale better than Jack. And I've met presidents, I've met generals, I've met all kinds of people. You know, he created an aura about himself he knew how to hold people accountable. He could communicate to one person and to 300,000 people at the same time. He really valued people and human resources. He, he knew how to create internal teams that weren't obvious to other people. And when I work with founders today, you know, a lot of his principles work on a hundred person company trying to be a thousand person company. Right. And they also work for somebody running a 100,000-person company that wants it to be more nimble and smaller. And, you know, Brian Welch, to this day, I've never seen anybody that could do it, you know, quite the way he could do it, you know. So I, I learned a, a ton from him. Yeah. Were there any really just like key tangible things that he did very well, maybe the way he always opened conversations or open speeches or just the way you saw him approach problems? You know, one time I took... A dozen nuns who ran all of the Catholic healthcare systems in the U.S. to Fairfield to meet, have breakfast with Welch. And for the first 30 minutes, he was asking the nun about her life, right? He's like, you know, tell me how you run something and how do you do this and how do you do it for the first 30 minutes. And I, right. I thought that was a masterful <laughs> stroke. You know, he knew 
just how to relate. And he was legitimately curious every day of his life. So Jeff, of course, the onus of this episode was the release of your book called Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company. So for some, I'm sure our listeners are are aware it was a rocky road in your tenure. Why was now the right time to write this book? Yeah, you know, Ryan, I think the way I wrote the book is as important as kind of like how and why. I mean, the reason why I wrote the book was I felt like the context around the company had gone missing and the way it had been covered over the last three or four years. It's not so much about me or protecting any of my feelings or things like that, but that context also impacted thousands of people who did great work, right. many of whom were far superior than their competitors and serve their customers. And so I felt like their story had to be told. And think about the conversation you and I have just had. Like today, all leadership is crisis leadership. And I had plenty of that, right? Right. But I wrote it in a methodical way. I wanted time to think. I wanted distance from the time I retired. I hired a co-writer who was a woman who was a very skilled journalist. And I wanted her to interview me, but also interview 75 other people who were there with me. And so, you know, we completed that work last year. I kind of looked up and felt like in the middle of COVID, it wouldn't be a bad time to release the book because there's, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter where you're in business, you're going through a lousy time right now. Right. And I thought, uh, you know, it might be helpful to you to read about somebody else's lousy time (laughs) and how they dealt with it. So I wanted to give it time. I wanted to include lots of other people's points of view, and that work was completed last year. And then I made the decision, you know, in the middle of COVID and things like that, that it wasn't a bad time to release the book. And so you mentioned these 75 interviews. What were some of the most maybe profound blind spots that you found that either you had maybe misremembered or didn't know about your tenure? Yeah, I think I'd give you two. I'd say some around people. You know, some of them were just around both people that were great and people that... I should have known better, right? And so when you get other people's perspectives on some of your blind spots on people, that really is, um, it adds context. The other one is just the art of listening. You know, I, I now teach a business school class and I think sometimes your professors tell you that you would, everybody, everything would be perfect in the world if everybody listened to everybody all the time, you know? And that's just not true. You know, in other words, I spent a lot of time listening Most of the time, I would act on what other people told me, but sometimes I followed my own path and it worked. Sometimes I followed my own path and it didn't work, right? Sometimes sometimes I followed the path that people suggested to me and it worked. Sometimes I followed the path that people suggested to me and it didn't work, right? Right. So I think think one of the things that... uh, the book tried to point out is, and I try to be very transparent is, you know, there was a group, Morgan Stanley, in fact, who came to me in 2006 and said, I should punch out of all the commercial real estate assets, that the market was at a high. I said, well, you know, this is a good G business. We shouldn't do that. Turns out by 2008, I looked stupid. Right. And I was very (laughs) transparent about that story, which if I was just telling it on myself, I probably would have glossed over that story, but the fact that I had two or three people that were in the meeting who said, yeah, Jeff, this is really the way it happened. Ruth Porat was there. This is what she said. This is what you said. And so I just let it all flow in that context. And so Jeff, of course, throughout the book, I think something that you touch on a lot, and I certainly think about as I read it, is your legacy and the concept of legacy. When thinking about your own legacy at GE, what does it mean to you? Oh, gosh, Ryan, it's a great question. I'm not sure I can really answer that question yet. You know, it's going to be complicated no matter what. Mm. I, I have great relationships with the people I work with. I love the company, and I really worked my ass off every day to help the company do better. But all that being said, I know there's some people that hold me responsible, and I'll wear that to the day I die, right? So. It's an extremely complicated thing that I don't think is done yet. It's certainly not done in my own mind, even though I think about it every day. Is there anything that still really bothers you from your tenure, especially, you know, in your first two years, let's say, after stepping down? Yeah, you know, I think that 
in the end, all of life is about people and people's relationships and things like that. And I would say that I was, I remained disappointed that people didn't defend their own work. Not that they didn't defend me. I, I never expected people in the company to defend me, right? It, it's all about the company. But I always expect people to defend the decisions they made or, or their own work. And so I was really disappointed in a handful of people who, when things were challenged, didn't defend their own work or the people they worked with. And I think that's horrible. And, I, and I'll never forgive them. I contrast that, Ryan, to the financial crisis, which was really horrible, I have to say. That was a you tough time. <laughs> and I never once had any leader in the company who did anything other than stand tall, were highly accountable, solved the problem, didn't point fingers. And that's what I would have expected to take place. And that didn't happen. Hey listeners, hope you're enjoying this interview. One quick note, the next question touches on the acquisition of Alstom. And you know, the SparkNotes version is in a tenure full of pretty bad acquisitions, this was the worst. GE bought the business for $10 billion and just a few years later had to write it off for about $23 billion. It was kind of the nail in the coffin for Jeff. In the book, Jeff shoulders the blame for a lot, except for this deal where he kind of blames one of his lieutenants a lot more. His name is Steve Bowles. Yeah, and one example of that that it brings me to in the book is, you know, of course, the Alstom deal, which anyone who has followed GE will be well aware. And you do call out Bowles, you know, a specific leader of yours quite a bit. I'm sure it was a tough decision to think about writing those pages. You probably had a lot of different people you wanted to think about and write about. What was the thought process like that for you for putting together those pages and leaving them in? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, this is a story that's been told incompletely and factually wrong. And in its incomplete telling and factual inexactness, it's hurt dozens of people, good people. And I felt like what I owed to those people was a complete telling of the story, wherever it took us. And like I said, my co-author talked to a number of people that were in the deal rooms and things like that. And so, I, you know, really, I've lived a life of 40 years of not doing this, of just right. keeping my mouth shut. But I think in this case, it goes back to the way I answered a question earlier, which was so many good people got hurt because of the unwillingness of others to tell a story completely and truthfully, that sometimes if you're thoughtful and you're reflective, you earn the right to tell that story completely. And that's what I, that's what I try to do here. And I, I think in the book, you're very honest with yourself, with the performance of the company. Well, look, I'm harder on myself than anybody else, Ryan. Yeah. In the book. It's, you know, I want your, very your, critical. I want your listeners to know that. <laughs> right. No, I, absolutely. And there's a, I think one part of it, you get very personal, explaining some times of just sheer panic that anybody would feel, you know, barely being able to eat in the wake of 9-11, sneaking off for just a hot shower as your one you know, 10-minute break in the day during the financial crisis. You know, to an outsider, this is you know, like almost unbefitting of a, unbecoming of a CEO. You might think they're always stoic. You spend decades working with so many. Are they all like this behind the scenes? Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons why business books do so poorly is because they're filled with fables of like, I woke up one day and I had the seven answers. And if you just follow these seven answers, that's what you will, uh, that's how you'll be successful. And, and so they're crap, most of them, because they're just not honest. And I think most good leaders that I know are filled with self-doubt, are look at themselves in the mirror every night and say, I'm a huge failure. And they wake up the morning and they look in the mirror and say, Hello, handsome. I'm ready to go another day. Let's go get them. <laughs> right. And that's the truth. Look, I, Jamie Diamond's been my friend for 40 years. There were long periods of time where Jamie was, mm -hmm. you know, not the Jamie you see today. And uh, Lloyd Blankfein. And, you know, I could go through your whole cast of characters. Really, Brian, if you're in financial services, if you went back to 2010, there wasn't one leader of a financial service firm that Americans didn't want to lynch. Right. Right. And now they're pretty good. Right. So it's just I think everybody benefits by knowing not just what you did, but how you felt. And what I try to do in the book is actually talk about how I felt, you know, not that I was always right, 
but to share, you know, like this was the way I felt that day. The day my lead director told me my time was over, I was sad, you know? That was like the saddest day of my life. Not that he was wrong, not that it wasn't time, Mm -hmm. but I, I think people benefit by knowing not just what people did, but how they felt. And that's what I tried to do in the book. I think you accomplish it absolutely because that was really one of my biggest takeaways. It's it's very human, the book. And I and like you said, I mean, I've had to read plenty of business books and it's just, you know, here are my principles. It's incredible. You shine. It's all about grit. And it almost seems inhumane <laughs> in yeah. a way and very sterile. But I want to tackle, you know, your first week as CEO. You know, the saying goes, the wind blows hardest at the top of the mountain. And I don't think it could have blown harder on your first week. So can you tell our listeners what your first week was, you know, in September 10th, 2001? Yeah, I became, uh, my first day was September 10th of 2001. I did an all-employee broadcast, and then I flew to Seattle, where I, I woke up the morning of September 11th. I went down to the fitness center and turned on TV, and the World Trade Center was on fire. And so that just triggered a kind of a multiple week crisis management kind of masterclass. We were in the aviation industry, the media business, the insurance business, you know, so we were going through what employees were affected and how many people died, were our employees safe, what would happen to our aviation business. And, you know, what it did for me was it made me have to make decisions on the very first day about things I didn't know really about. You know, for instance, we had to loan billions of dollars to airlines around the world, and they were financial instruments I didn't really even understand. So I would have to, and these were meetings at, let's say, 10 p.m., and we would have to make decisions by 6 a.m. the next morning. And I would look to my vice chairman and say, okay, explain to me what a WTC is again, and why will this airline go bankrupt, and how much money will keep them afloat? And and then the answer had to be yes or no, right? There was no way to say. And so I, I think it kind of just uh, made me be more public inside the company very quickly, both from a communications and decision-making standpoint. But I think more important than that, Ryan, it, it, you know, you had the end of the bubble economy, 9-11 and Enron all happened within a three or four-month time period. It really changed the world for public companies. It changed the world for leadership. And so... You know, everything that I was prepared for, some of those things were still relevant, but a lot of that world just changed, changed really dramatically. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the shadow of New York. It was certainly a traumatizing, transformational time for all of us. And even as a pretty young kid, I knew that this was something very serious. So in that week, GE's market cap, I think, lost about $80 billion dollars. It's, you know, your first weeks there as CEO, and you're now sitting there holding the bag. How did you balance and how should executives balance, you know, relying on yourself in times of crisis versus seeking counsel and relying on advisors? Yeah, you know, so I had, I think one of the lessons for your listeners is that if you're around people you trust, there's no situation that's too big for you, right? And in those days, I had a vice chairman whose name was Dennis Derriman. I had some board members that I really trusted. And so I could rely on those people to kind of like, there there is no right answer in a crisis, Mm -hmm. but I can trust those people to give me advice that was in the best interest of the entire company and not just themselves personally. The other thing I, you know, Ryan, like the very first day the stock opens down, our biggest investor dumped half their position. I called the portfolio manager after the first day and said, hey, my friend, what's going on here? Right. And he said, look, I didn't realize GE was so big in the insurance business. And I said, you know, you own $4 billion of stock. <laughs> really? You didn't understand that we were in the insurance business? I mean, come on, man. And I, I also I started to get an opinion about, you know, the state of our portfolio, transparency around the company. And some things that when I was able to catch my breath, that really needed to change. So maybe in the long run, that's a good thing. And if if an investor who didn't understand your insurance exposure is now out of your business, but still tough to stomach. 
So Jeff, in the 20 years after 9-11, one major trend and maybe the largest of all has been globalization. It's a concept you visit frequently in your book, and it's definitely been on the mind of many of our listeners. In the eyes of many Americans, globalization is a euphemism for outsourcing and job loss. As CEO of General Electric, a global company in all regards, how did you frame globalization and apply it to your business? So, you know, in each era, there are two or three things that CEOs have to get right, you know, because it's going to lead to growth or risk or other things. And I would say if you were 2001 to 2017, one of the things you had to get right was globalization. In 2001, 85% of our turbines and jet engines were sold in the United States. By 2017, 85% of turbines and jet engines were sold outside the United States. Wow. Right? So that's seismic, <laughs> you know, in, in yeah. context and things like that. You know, globalization is one of the most uh, misunderstood concepts in the world today. People think of it as outsourcing. That's kind of like a 1980s version of globalization. Mm -hmm. The globalization we live from 2010, let's say, to 2017 was one of localization. Whereas, you know, if you were in China, you had to make stuff in China. If you're in India, you had to be local in India or Europe or Africa or the Middle East or the U.S. And I think we always try to not listen to kind of naysayers and not listen to old-fashioned people talk about these trade deals. Look, in 2004, a free trade deal with Colombia and South in South America passed by one vote. So if you're a CEO, you basically sit there and say, these guys aren't going to pass any trade deals as long as I'm alive. That's long before Trump, really. Right. You know, so if you couldn't see the writing on the wall, yet as a business person, you had to sell in China, you had to sell in Germany and mm -hmm. Russia and other places around the world. So globalization changed. China came on the scene. You know, you had to be more local than global. People that did that got ahead. People that didn't didn't get ahead. The last thing I would say, Ryan, is one of my biggest fears today is that people like you and your colleagues around the country mm -hmm. that are getting MBAs are afraid to do business in China. I feel like you can live your business career with no interface with China, and that's just dead wrong. That's just specifically wrong. <laughs> and so it's up to your leaders when you join your career to show you how to do it, not to say you can't do it. And I think that's a big challenge. So globalization is tough today, but it's only because business people haven't taken the time to explain it. Especially in the last few years, I think the relationship between U.S. and China has been frosty at best, and it's portrayed that way in the media. I was going to ask this later, but I might just get right to it. What words do you have for current CEOs and, of course, President Biden to lead America through this relationship with China? And, of course, you have worked with President Biden before. Yeah, look, I think the issue politically is that we don't have relationships with leaders around the world. You know, we don't really have any contextual relationship in China or even in the Middle East or even in Europe, you know? Mm -hmm. So in other words, we've kind of abdicated constancy of purpose politically. That shouldn't be the case in business. Business people should do their work. They should travel. They should understand. They should have their own point of view. They should be good on the ground you know, always following U.S. law and U.S. purpose, but you should have your own point of view about China or Mexico or Brazil or Germany or Russia or other countries around the world. So my advice to President Biden is he should meet, be meeting personally with President Xi four times a year. There's no relationship that shapes humankind more than the relationship between China and the U.S. He shouldn't delegate that to anybody he should be personally engaged. Look, in the, you're too young. This is before you were born. But in the middle of the Cold War, President Reagan met with his counterparts in Russia two or three times a year. And we were at war with each other. You know, and ostensibly, right. we were like, you know, dead <laughs> enemies. Now, you know, the fact is that China is not going to go away. They're a big force. We don't understand them. We have no relationships with them. And, um, you know, that's something that has to be fixed. And if you had to maybe push the clock forward, let's say nine or so years to 2030, where do you see China in nine years and their relationship with the U.S. You know, on a global stage? Look, people have to understand, like, 
I live the American dream. I love my country, so I'm an American <laughs> through and through. But for the first time in our, probably in most of our history, we will have a peer that looks economically like us. It looks militarily, I don't know. There's probably other people you can interview on that. But the economy is as big, the education rate is as strong, with a very different set of governmental principles and human rights principles. And that is a stable relationship if we have some kind of context for each other. And it's an unstable relationship if we don't, right? If we're, if we're not having trade and, yeah. you know, but if you go, if I could take you on a tour of the world, you know, Ryan, if I took you to a hotel lobby in Sao Paulo, it'd be more Chinese than Americans in the hotel lobby. Wow. If I drove on a street in Angola, the street signs are in Mandarin. Okay. If I showed you a power plant that was being built in Saudi Arabia, it's being built by a Chinese EPC. So the point I'm making is that they're expanding externally, and we need to be ex expanding externally as well. Last point I'll make, and then I'll shut up. Yeah. Um, company by company, we cannot compete them. American companies still have tremendous competitive advantage if we're, if we're allowed to have a level playing field and if we push ourselves forward into the future. No, that's fantastic insight, Jeff. And I agree. I mean, the impact China has had in developing markets over the last decade has been profound. And I think a lot of Americans have been a little bit asleep at the wheel to their surge over the last decade. And now you're kind of seeing the final results of their build. But if you've been watching over the last decade, I think it, you know you could see it coming. And don't apologize. You're not in the boardroom or on CNBC anymore. You can let loose and go long-winded. We are on a podcast after all. So Jeff, you mentioned the importance of diplomacy, and in the book, you detail some intense meetings you had with people like Vladimir Putin, Sisi of Egypt, Angela Merkel, who you're highly complimentary of, and others. How did you approach these conversations, and what can our listeners learn about building international relationships in business? You have to see the world through their eyes. You have to know that you know, a politician has different share owners. It has different purpose than businesses do, uh, but they can still coexist. But you have to see, you know, if you're if you're sitting across the table from President Sisi in Egypt and you're you're in Cairo, you have to know that like installing two gigawatts of electricity, that's a great business opportunity for GE. But if it doesn't get done by the time the summer comes, politicians are going to get voted out. So you have to see every new deal, every new venture through their eyes and their context. And some business leaders you know, do that better than others. And I think if you can, it's up to you to go back and say, okay, here's how we make money, right? Here, here's how we can succeed. And I always say to be a good globalist, to be good around the world, you have to know how to make money in a country and for a country. In other words, you have to know how your company can be profitable in a country but you also need to know how they win. And that's how what we try to do, you know, kind of in a bunch of different countries around the world. So Jeff, we are, of course, on a fintech podcast. So I do want to transition back to a little bit more of a fintech lens. One of your big challenges over your years at GE was, of course, GE Capital. And for our fintech audience, I don't know if people realize how dominant this business was. Can you briefly explain what GE Capital did? Yeah, for sure. So. Um, you know, GE Capital started as a way to finance our own products, mainly appliances. And over the course of the 80s, you know, debt markets started opening up. And that's when finance companies, what are, what are called FinCos, started to grow. And basically, they took uh, cost of borrowing, either in long-term debt or commercial paper markets, and companies with a good balance sheet could lend that out at a, at a higher spread. And so you could grow your businesses in a successful way by borrowing money and lending money with good risk principles and things like that. In the early 90s, that was kind of put on steroids because the entire banking industry got rocked by a real estate, another real estate crisis. And so we basically had the decade of the 90s, you know, banks pulled out of a lot of really commercial lending operations. And GE Capital just had a green light to kind of go and 
maybe in places where we shouldn't have been, but we had low funding costs and we were able to take industrial cash flow, AAA rated balance sheet, borrow inexpensively, and we had very strong, I would say, front end of both commercial people and risk people who allowed us to do aircraft lending and uh, capital equipment lending and things like that. And that grew uh, successfully for a long time until uh, 2008 when the financial markets were changed forever, right? So the aspect of the financial crisis, really no company got hit worse than GE Capital because it really blew up the debt markets. And uh, we were never really big on taking deposits. That was really the purview of the banks. And it's when the competitive advantage really shifted from the debt markets to the deposit market in terms of uh, driving lending growth. So that's a two-minute answer to kind of how (laughs) G Capital uh, grew. No, that was about as good as you could do in two minutes, Jeff. And you know, there's an amazing, crazy story in the book of the selling of the GE Capital business and the fire sale of assets that was done in about 72 hours where none of you slept. But I'll save that for the book. Now, one thing you did mention is, of course, banks and depository institutions. I feel that these traditional financial institutions are in a pretty similar spot to what GE you know, was in not too long ago and still are in. You know, facing disruption from the business side, but also on the talent side. You know, in finance now, there's a fierce war for talent. There's the big rise of fintech and just challenges to incumbents. What advice do you have for senior leaders on, you know, how they can combat this rise of fintech? What incumbents can learn from GE and this, you know, talent war? Yeah, it's a great question, Ryan. Look, I I think, you know, the banks that kind of survived the financial crisis, most of them became bigger, but they're also really highly regulated. So they're almost, you know, like public utilities almost, right? really with, from the standpoint of, and then you've got a wave of disruption kind of coming your way from a technology and, and just investor standpoint in terms of the ability to, for these companies to raise money. Look, I, I watched a lot of the fintech companies. I think the space is really great. And one of the reasons is there's just, so much frictional cost in financial services, right? Anytime you read the word fee, if you're on one side, it's a good thing. But if you're on the other side, it's the kinds of things that digital technologies have beaten out of every other industry, right? If you think about, you know, we were in the insurance business 20 years ago, Ryan, and the largest cost was what was called DAC, acquisition cost. And it was a field sales force, right? There were door-to-door insurance salespeople. Right. right. And in 20 years, that's been blown up. That was a frictional cost that's been replaced by advertising and online services. And I just think platform by platform, that's going to be kind of ripped out of where the financial service industry is going because there's large pools of capital, there's disruptive technology, and everybody's pitch has a fee structure that you look at it dispassionately and say that shouldn't exist. Right. There's no way that that should cost 60 basis points or that should cost 15 basis points. So I just think we're still in the early days of uh, the activity. Now, if I put if I put on the hat of, uh, you know, my friend uh, James Gorman or Jamie Diamond or, or right. uh, David Solomon, you know, you need to be investing in as many of those platforms as you can. And you need to be transitioning your own consumers and your own commercial customers into digital technologies that lower cost before you get them stolen. And so you have incredible incumbency, you have incredible staying power and brand, but your old business model ain't lasting two minutes longer, right? So you've got to you've learn which margins to give up on first, and you've got to be recruiting like mad into digital space. I, I think, look, Right in my own life, I wish I had partnered with a digital startup company with GE Digital. Mm-hmm. I felt like we didn't have staying power because we didn't have currency. It was hard to build a culture. And to a certain extent, you know, when I know it didn't go through, but I, I thought like Visa acquiring Plaid, you know, was right. an attempt by the company to get some DNA inside that they could use to really grow and leverage and be able to pivot from. I think some of that's got to take place as best you can. You just have to infuse the culture and the technology. But look, the the whole fee structures 
are just going to be massively different in two, three, four, five years than they are today. And then, I don't know, you're smarter about this than I am. I layer on uh, where Bitcoin could go and blockchain in terms of, again, beating some of the frictional costs out of the system. There's just a ton of disruption that's going going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think your your friend David Solomon is at least doing the best he can to start this up with, of course, building Marcus within Goldman Sachs. He's been fighting valiantly to incubate this. Yeah, look, I love David. You know, I David was kind of at my side on so many like crappy days <laughs> of my life. He was right. my but you know, he's got a point of view on what the future of Goldman should look like. He's willing to take the heat to try to get them there. And I admire that. You know, one of the things I say in the book, Ryan, is like, every job looks easy till you're the one doing it. Of course. And <laughs> I include that with some of the people that the business press likes to, <laughs> likes to pick on or talk about. Yeah. So final question on FinTech. Are there any other companies? I know you just mentioned Plaid and a couple big trends. Are there any specific companies that you're admiring in the space right now? Oh, gosh, there's little companies like, uh, you know, they're little to me. They're big in the venture, but, you know, like Brex and Divi oh, yeah. and, you know, some of the people that are in the payment spaces. And, you know, again, one of the things to keep in mind is there's so many new small and medium-sized companies today that these financial service companies can kind of learn to build with and to grow with. There's a company called LoanPal that really does work in the around renewable energy and provides a marketplace and financing that I, I just think is incredibly disruptive and clever. And so I, and again, what tends to happen is that you have founders that have done these things before. Uh, what I like about Lone Pal is that it's founders that actually started in more traditional industries that, that take what they remember from traditional industries and are able to a- apply it to FinTech. And in, in this case, uh, one of the founders came from Oracle, another founder came from TPG, and they have the chops of being great operators, but they also, you know, attract a tremendous group of tech people as well. So I want to close now. I mean, you had this unbelievable journey at GE that has, of course, led you now to NEA, one of the most storied venture capital firms in the world. What brought you to this as your next step and what do you focus on? Yeah, so I'd lived around the world, but I'd never lived in Silicon Valley and I wanted to see disruption up close. I wanted to see what it was really all about. I wanted to do mainly healthcare. So NEA has a big healthcare platform, and I wanted to work with founders. I I kind of felt like I wanted to be in a position to give back in some way to the next generation of business leaders. And this gives me a real chance to kind of see the next generation of of business leaders up close. And and it's been, uh, I've been doing it now just about four years and I I really love it. It's been great. And I wanted to go small, you know, right. I've been in a big company for so long. Right. I wanted to be very focused and small again, and it's accomplished all of those things. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you're sitting across the table from so many founders, you know, pitching you, seeking your advice. What do you see in a founder that gives you a lot of belief in this person having had so much experience? I think curiosity, and not just curiosity, but the ability to ask good questions. You know, I was with a guy named David Rogier, who was the founder of Masterclass yesterday. Oh, yeah. And the first time I met him was four years ago. Now, the company's done great, Mm -hmm. but he's grown so much in those four years. I'm just so amazed and proud of everything the guy's done. And what David has is just, he's never too proud to ask a dumb question. And he's always leaning in on the next big piece of information and things like that. And that's special, right? That's what Jeff Bezos had. That's what, you know, Mark Benioff had. That's what Fred Smith had at FedEx. And, you know, they just lean in on really hard on asking great questions. And is there anything that maybe surprised you about switching to the investor role? I think it's kind of like, it's, I'm not surprised, but it's, you know, there just is a different lane for investors and operators. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's a choice that you'll make or people make in their careers, which is, you know, there's, there's a way an investor thinks and there's a way an operator thinks. Some people can cross over between the two, not many. And it's helpful to have both perspectives but you lean in every problem from a different perspective when you're an investor versus when you're an operator. And I, I have always kind of felt that way, but I see it you know, up close and personally right now. 
Well, Jeff, you have reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got about 10 questions for you, Max, you know, like 10, 20 second answer each. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. First one, easy one. HBS classmate you most admire. I'd say my friend Peter McLaughlin because he's been immensely successful, but he's always done in the context of being a family man and putting his own values first. And I always love people that are true to themselves. So you're starting a new company and you need to put together your dream team. You need a CEO, CFO, COO, and a couple board members. Who are you putting together? Oh, gosh. I'd say... uh... I'm not going to sign the rules. I'd say Dave Cody, uh, Jamie Dimon, Mary Barra, Roger Penske, Ken Chenault. Hey, all. Just a quick note on those names. So Dave Cody was the CEO of Honeywell. Jamie Dimon is, of course, J.P. Morgan's CEO. Mary Barra is the CEO of GM. Roger Penske is of the Penske car and racing products fame. And Ken Chenault is, of course, the former CEO of Amex. Great list. Now, how about favorite question to ask in an interview? Who's your favorite boss? Love it. You know, in other words, it's a twofer because <laughs> you get to say, see the way a person thinks about themselves, but you also can grade who else is out there. So it, it always works. <laughs> how about who is the person you feared most in your career other than your wife? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd have to say Welch. You know, Jack. <laughs> Jack could, he had these eyes that when he was pissed, they were like laser eyes that would just melt you. So yeah, he would still give me butterflies. Yeah. And of course, there's some great stories in the book. One, of course, he's on CNBC and says he's going to shoot you if you miss earnings again. Yeah, that and then, was not, I wasn't happy with him that day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great story in the book. And of course, the refrigeration recall yeah. that you mentioned where you have to yeah, tell no, him. No, no, He could bring heat. Yeah. So how about you have a long night of work ahead. What is your ideal dinner meal before a long night of work? I'd say three slices of cold pizza. Cold pizza. Yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. Need the cargo load, things like that. It's great. (laughs) How about you're a huge fan of reading and military history, which you discuss in the book. What are two books that every executive should read? I think, you know, there's a number of books on Gettysburg, but there's a book just called Gettysburg from the early 2000s. You know, Gettysburg is a study of failure and the most resilient army won, despite the fact that there was almost no good work that, that happened. Right. But, uh, I always think that's good in business. And the Army at Dawn, which was the the World War II trilogy by a guy named Atkinson, because it showed how rough the Army was in the beginning and how great it became five years later. So it's kind of the story of continuous improvement. Now, more of a fun question. What are your thoughts on 30 Rock, who mercilessly mocked GE for years? Love 30 Rock. I thought, uh, you know, Lord Michaels was kind of a friend of mine at the time, the Saturday Night Live guy. And he said, he begged me to put 30 Rock on the air. And I overrode all the managers to put it on. And he said, you know, GE will always be proud of this show. And I called him when it went off the air some years later and said, Lauren, it was a great show. Being proud of it. Yeah, I don't know about that. that, But but it was a great show. Yeah, we'll maybe link some fun clips in the episode description for people to watch. So how about percent of life that is hard work, luck, and timing? Oh, gosh. Um, I still think hard work is uh, 80% and 10% is the other two. There certainly is luck, for sure. There certainly is timing, for sure. But, you know, I can't even think of a time when I fired somebody who was a really hard worker. (laughs) So, So I'll leave it at that. Great. And then final question, who would you like to see next on the War in Fintech podcast as a guest? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd like to see Janet Yellen because I think what your listeners don't understand is that government is now your partner, no matter what business you're in, and you better get used to it. And so I, I'd like to, I think your viewer, your listeners would benefit from what's on her mind. 
I personally, I would love to have Janet Yellen. If you have a connection, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be sending uh, email blasts sure. to, to the White House. Great. <laughs> well, Jeff, it was fantastic Thanks, and an Ryan. honor having you on the show today. I want to thank you for coming on. Great questions. It's an honor. And congrats to all your classmates at Wharton. I, uh, you've gone to school in a horrible time. The experience wasn't what it should be. But you don't know good days until you've had bad days. And you guys have seen plenty of bad days. So hopefully good days are ahead. It's only up from here. So again, for our listeners, Jeff and Mel just released a book, Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company. It's a fantastic read. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you, Jeff, for coming on. See you, Ryan. Thanks. All right, listeners, you've made it to the end of the episode. So of course, here is the pretty wholesome story behind Emelt's GE logo tattoo, which is located on his left hip. So he has a daughter. And when his daughter was a teenager, he always used to tease her that he was going to get a tattoo one day. And then one day he was in his office in Fairfield, Connecticut, where GE's headquarters is on a Saturday and said, you know what, I'm going to get a tattoo today. He Googled tattoo in Danbury because he wanted to be far enough away that nobody would recognize him. He gets the tattoo parlor. He shows the tattoo artist the GE logo, affectionately called the GE meatball. And, you know, he puts his wife initials on top and his daughter's initials on the bottom. And she says, why are you doing this? And he tells the tattoo artist, you know, I work at GE and I play in a bowling league and I lost a bad bet. So this is what I have to do. And he got the tattoo, obviously still has it to this day, and of course says his daughter's jaw hit the floor when he showed her. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk. Thank you.